Hey everyone, welcome to part two of In Defense of Politics by Bernard Crick. If you haven't checked out last week's episode yet, I strongly recommend you go listen to that one because there's tons of important context that factors into this discussion. And we're picking up in the middle of the book here with the chapter In Defense of Technology. I also recommend you go check out our interview episode with Brian Kaplan, where we discuss his book, How Evil Are Politicians? Because these two episodes are a rebuttal to Brian's critique of our current system of governance. I hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, so then he goes into the defense of politics against technology. I love this one. I thought this one was super relevant, especially to us here living in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Um, because this idea of like, you know, benevolent te technocracy, technocratic government yeah. is relatively common, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, that, that That's a good thing. Yeah. And, and actually with this... I mean, absolutely. Being out here in Silicon Valley, I think there's a there's a strong belief that if we if we were in charge, things would be way better. Yeah, the government sucks. You know, startup societies. You know, whatever uh, government tech, like we should take it all over. You know, maybe maybe not. But I think like g generally the idea that like the idea that science provides conclusions is, I think, at the heart of this in a way. Yeah, where science provides premises. You know, like here's the lethality rate of COVID. Here's the infectiousness rate. You know, here's the impact of this intervention. Here's the impact of that intervention. You, as as a politician, have to make a philosophical argument using those premises and draw a conclusion. And part of that is going to come down to values. And I think that's one of the issues I've had with, and one of the the things I've seen with this in the last few years is people are always like trust the science. To me, that's a manifestation of this technological impulse to replace politics right yeah yeah and and he, yeah related to that he says here you know technology creates the image of applying scientific knowledge to the administration of society so technology is of course simply the activity of applying scientific principles to the production of tools and goods whether or not these principles are fully understood but in his definition what he's defending politics against Technology holds that all the important problems facing human civilization are technical and that therefore they're all soluble on the basis of existing knowledge or readily attainable knowledge, if sufficient resources are made available. Um, oftentimes it comes down to values right. and a conciliation of values, right? Because, I mean, yeah, again, like... Science can provide us with the terms of the argument and the facts, but like we as, as individuals have to decide what those mean to us. You know, um, what risks are we willing to take, for example? Right. Yeah. But this is true not just in terms of um, in terms of COVID, but in so many things, right? Like in, in every domain, you have experts who are like, "Leave it to us." You know, this is not the realm of politics. Like this is the realm of. Uh, civil engineers this is the realm of whatever like you know housing experts this is the realm of public health experts when oftentimes it's like yeah it's the realm of them to like provide the terms of the argument but not to like push a conclusion 
that they're determining based on their values as a group. Yeah. 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 And just to be clear here, he's, he's defending against technology as a doctrine, not against the use and pursuit of technology in general. So he supports yeah. technology in general, but not as a political doctrine. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think like what he's against is like, you know, people with deep technical knowledge thinking that all disagreement can just be like waved away and unity can be brought about by the application of scientific knowledge or in some cases more like pseudo-scientific knowledge. Right. Um, yeah. Or science plus implicit values uh, to furnish conclusions. Yeah. I, I, th- I thought this was really powerful um, for the other reasons I mentioned, but also because, like, the Soviet Union was kind of based on this, right? Yeah. This, like, idea of um, scientific socialism, of the omnipotent central, central planner applying the tools of science to, like, make society run in perfect alignment and harmony, when in reality, what it caused was mass starvation massive surpluses and, and underproduction of goods and just general suffering. Yet the smartest people in society become chess masters and because of the complete lack of opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, and he touches on that as well. Um, he talks about how totalitarian ideologies are in large part a perversion of science and they could only arise in a scientific age because the whole concept of remaking society utterly is derivative from the idea of scientific law applying applied to understanding society um yeah so he quotes hannah arendt here who says foreign ideology differs from a simple opinion in that it claims to possess either the key to history or the solution for all the riddles of the universe and crick says ideologies then are essentially pseudoscientific they claim to do for history and society what the physicists are doing for our understanding of nature and the engineers for productivity. I think that's a super critical one. I think there are a lot of people, again, in society today who do genuinely believe that they can do this. Like they can have some like quote unquote scientific or, or clear understanding of society and they could say, oh, because of X, Y, Z, this is what society is this way. And we must undo this and that in order to to get to the ideal society. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah. And I think it's simply not true. Yeah, and I mean, one one way to see this is like, okay, if I continue to like lay out premises, eventually they imply an obvious conclusion, right? You could say, um, like, let's say, washing hands reduces the rates of childbed fever right like Semmelweis discovered this thing and that that that's a that's a premise it's something he's found you need the additional premise of like human life is worth protecting to have the conclusion that doctors should wash hands right and that's an obvious one but you have other cases where it's like a literal freedom versus harm moral intuition question cigarettes kill people secondhand smoke kills people okay what is your freedom to smoke worth versus the risks of smoking cigarettes yeah right like people have to hash that out on the basis of like what they prioritize and it's not a scientific question anymore right yeah. exactly it's, it's, it seems obvious if your key moral virtue is harm reduction right yeah it's like oh we have this premise that premise that premise this is how we reduce harm done but that's not the only like moral intuition it's not the only value right yeah exactly exactly 
Um, related to this as well, he talks about how... Well, I'll just quote here. The relativism of political theory is precisely what is wrong with it in the eyes of the ideologist. That one set of institutions may work better here than there, and that any form of politics at all may not be possible in all circumstances. These are damning admissions to the totalitarian. He is not interested in this kind of frustrating piecemeal humility. He is not interested in understanding, but only in explanation. He has a scientific key to history, and if he thinks in terms of immediate political issues at all, then they are simply tactics. Indeed, tactics of history, part of the grand strategy of the advance towards a fully rational world order. Um, but I think that line, you know, he's not interested in understanding, but only in explanation, is really key to this, this idea we've been talking about. And yeah. again, to um, a lot of the rhetoric that we have today you know no one not no one but there's large contingents of the population that are not interested in listening to any other perspectives uh but simply in dictating what the correct way to do things is yeah and you know i i think that comes from the same place of like we don't want to understand we're going to tell you we want to explain to you what it is yeah yeah and i mean you saw it with nazi science too in um, Marxist science, you know, they had like very sophisticated theories of explanation to justify their actions. Right. Um, and obviously they were completely out of sync with reality. Right. Though I did hear a, a Marxist professor recently on a podcast saying something like, Stalin presided over the like fastest growing economy in human history and the average man was better off under Stalin. I was like, interesting. <laughs> this seems like you're selectively uh, assessing the data here a little bit. Well, as long as you consider the average man after Stalin, and you don't consider all of the millions of people that were killed, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then maybe that argument is true. Yeah, I guess if you factor in, like, if you take each person who died and factor in, like, Zero wealth, at least, right? Yeah. How does that work out? <laughs> the average wealth is like zero point one. I, I just found that like mind-boggling, honestly. Like, it was totally like a Mussolini made the trains run on time type argument. He was like, "Oh, Stalin was a great conversationalist." <laughs> <It's> like what? <laughs> Some oh, other man. qualities he had too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Stalin couldn't tolerate dissent in any form as a true totalitarian and this is something martin and i touched on last week with animal farm yeah um, timely podcast yeah yeah kind of on this theme of of political philosophy and political theory for a little bit here yeah but it's the same thing you know he's like um in animal farm napoleon or, or stalin um just stamps out all opposition because they're secretly conspiring with Snowball, a.k.a. Trotsky. Yeah. And um, there's no evidence of that at all. And then they just slowly, like, rewrite history as time goes on and people forget. And the people who remember are just murdered. Yeah. Um, that is mind-boggling, though. These goddamn Marxists, like... Yeah, it, it was a shock, for sure. For sure. But, hey, at least I was stretching myself and trying to listen to something. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's good. That's something the Marxist wouldn't do. Apparently, because he probably wouldn't hold some of these views if he did. Yeah. 
Oh man. Um, yeah, the scientism is, is, is really dangerous for sure. Yeah. Okay. So another interesting one here was that he talks about how the reality or memory of desperate poverty is no excuse for organizing people always to the maximum pitch of economic efficiency if that efficiency involves a suppression of politics, of the canvassing of alternatives, and a free discussion, the killing of all spontaneity, play, and frivolity, and the forbidding of even occasional extravagances. It is terrible nonsense to presume that a richer or a more productive society is necessarily a happier one for people to live in than a society poorer or less efficient. You know what's crazy about this? What's crazy about this to me is, in his time, people like held the view that communism might be more efficient still. Yeah. That's why he's saying this. He's like, hey, you know what? Communism might be more efficient if we just get everybody arranged in this like scientific order, but we still shouldn't do it because of all these reasons. Now it's like the opposite. Now on anti-capitalist grounds, people are like, hey, we don't need this like super efficient society. You know, we... <laughs> There's other things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although I think you can make the claim for efficiency, for example, with... Um, Maoism and the CCP more so than you can with Stalinism and, and the USSR. Yeah, I, I think you can make it make it in the modern day. Under, under Mao, probably not. Um, but like, you know, the Chinese, like, mercantilist, communist, like, whatever, like, synthesis, where they use certain elements of, like, you know, a market economy, but ultimately they're totalitarian. Like, that's working extremely well from an efficiency standpoint. So you're right, the argument does still stand. Yeah. Yeah. But under Mao, people starve. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, it's true. true. And I was talking to my friend a while ago, one of my old friends, who's now a hardcore, as they call it, tanky. Um, <laughs> like tanky, like he, he, he supports the tanks at Tiananmen Square. <laughs> yeah, he's tanky because he loves the Chinese Communist Party. But okay, okay. He was talking about how like the, cult, uh, the Cultural Revolution was like uh, just necessary, evil. Are you and kidding me? It was fine because the outcomes were worth it. Horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> what about Taiwan? <laughs> like Taiwan's outcomes were as good, if not better, and they didn't do that shit. No, no, we had to kill everyone, dude. Trust me. <laughs> um, okay, so one relation tying back to the Brian Kaplan episode is he says here, there's a difference once again between denying freedom out of economic necessity and denying it out of principle between persuading people that a price for progress is worth paying and deceiving them that they get it for free. I love this tied into Kaplan and what he talked about with the justifications for war and for policies in general, where it's like, if we're going to be trading these things off, it's the ethical thing to do from the politician is to explain these trade-offs to us right. and in clear eyes say, you know, this is what's going to happen and this is why we need to trade off these freedoms in order to get there. Um, but I don't think it's what's done almost ever in politics. Yeah. So that's an interesting thing. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about politics is, is Brian is still right on a lot of points. But the problem is, like, what else? Like, that, to me, the core, core th themes of this book is what's the alternative? That's one. And the second is that unity is kind of like the enemy of politics. You know? Yeah. Um, and it's the enemy of a good society, like forcing unity through all these different like means, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Forced unity forever. 
there's a great line from like Harold Lasky on, in here somewhere where he's like I can't find it. <laughs> it's hard to stay on top of all these highlights and stuff, honestly. I know, especially in this book. Yeah, because for all the shit talking I've done about this book, there is a ton of, of there are a ton of gems in here. There's a ton of really interesting ideas. Almost every other page, I do have dog ears and highlights on. He tries to pack like ten ten points into every like paragraph. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so here's the line. So. Um, from Harold Lasky, he says, We shall make the basis of our state consent to disagreement. Therein we shall ensure its deepest harmony. I love that line. Yeah. I love that line, and I completely agree. Um, yeah. I think that is the essence of politics, yeah. is the consent to disagreement. And I think that's what alarms me about extremists on both sides, is 100%. that they don't consent to disagreement. They think it's my way or the highway. And yeah. that is fundamentally apolitical, and it's a threat to our society. Yeah, it is. Like, it is. what is American is being able to do something different from my neighbor, you yeah. know, that, and, and still be able to, you know, live in society peacefully with them. Yeah. Um, that, that's what a free society is. Yeah. yeah. And to dictate that you must, you know, behave or think in this way across the board is... I mean, I think immoral and just not a desirable outcome. I mean, it's a boring and lifeless and sad society that, that we would be in if that was the case. And there's a the massive excess of, like, certitude powering this, you know? Yeah. Where if you look at the um, the case of abortion, right? So there are people on the right who want, like, a, a federal abortion ban. Because to them, this is the thing itself. It's a human life. But if you actually look into the situation... There is a philosophical debate on personhood at the heart of this, and it's a philosophical debate. There is no scientific fact that can settle this. You know, it's 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 about values and disagreement, and you have to allow for that disagreement. Right. Um, and I would say similar on guns, where it's like, okay, guns kill a lot of people. Fact. Scientific fact. Uh, more guns means more people because, you know, just by exposure... There's a certain number of troubled people. Multiply that by the number of guns they have access to. It's the number of times they're going to use it, etc. That doesn't imply a conclusion that, therefore, we must reduce all harms from guns. There's a question of values there as well. Yeah. And there's massive certitude on both sides. Right. Like, the pro-gun people are like, you know, the freedom, our freedom can never be infringed in any way because this is it. Like, the right matter, our rights matter more than these atrocities. Um, and... People on, on the far left are like, no, we need to get rid of all guns because we can't have a single person killed from gun violence. And both of those uncompromising stances are inherently apolitical, is what Crick would argue. 100%. And politics is good because it allows us to reconcile our differing viewpoints. Yeah, and acknowledge that there is a differing viewpoint. Right. You know, Once you state that you are unwilling to compromise on any principle you have thrown away politics, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I feel like Crick would argue that's true for every principle, but I wonder if there are some principles that we all have to have in common, you know? Like, th things like, whatever, like, the the civilizing value of an ordered society, you know, with less violence as opposed to more. Yeah. Where you go back to, like, the Vikings would disagree, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, yeah it, it is interesting to think about. I mean, and again, I think for me, the ones I go back to are like are the fundamental, you know, views of liberalism, like the value of human life, the value of individual liberty, um, uh, freedom to, to pursue a, a life that you want to live. I mean, yeah, yeah. these things are, I would think, principles that are above politics, even after reading Crick. Yeah, um, I would agree. I can buy what Crick is saying is that they can only exist because of politics. That I can agree with. At and, scale. Yeah, at scale. And the idea that they're inalienable in the sense that the state cannot take them away is probably not true. Tell that to the Chinese. Yeah, yeah. the state can take them away. But the but state shouldn't. they shouldn't. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, um, I think it'll be good to... You know, we, we've already been delving into some of the Enlightenment foundations of our society. Like, we talked about Mill and stuff. I, I have Locke. Yeah. So I'm still curious to see, like, what their arguments are and how they flesh this out. Because how do you sell that? How do you sell that, you know, we have a nat- natural, inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Is there a, a meaningful argument even there? Yeah. Or is that something we wish we had? <laughs> yeah. I think that... After this one, I want to take a side tangent from political theory for a while. <laughs> Maybe go back to the sci-fi series and then we can come back to this. I'd be down, yeah. Be <laughs> because down. I, I need a break from, from reading political science books. We could do Other Minds. Uh, I don't know that one. What is Other Minds? It's it's about the consciousnesses of like deep-sea animals like the octopus and like what that tells us about the nature of consciousness. Oh, that would be interesting because we really don't understand shit about Other Minds. It's only very recently that, like, scientists have, like, admitted or realized that, like, other animals can have some form of cognition. Which is insane. Yeah. I mean, it's, well, to me, what's insane about it is, like, you know, if you have a pet or something, like, they have dreams, they have preferences, they get into personality battles with you over things, they're stubborn. Clearly, there's a lot going on. They form random, like, mental tics about things. Yeah. They randomly get afraid of things. Like, yeah. Yeah. This is not like just a like automaton, you know? right? Like, yeah, exactly. Okay, anything else on technology? No, I think this is going to become an increasingly important one because, as you said, the the Chinese government uh, is an example of a state that has become extremely successful. You know, with a technocratic combined with an ideological regime. I mean, they're not centrally planning everything, but they certainly uh, defer to experts who make decisions for them without consulting their values, right? So I think this question is going to get more and more important. Um, it's going to it's going to be really important to defend politics against technology as technology improves, basically. Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, you know, and as someone who does firmly believe in science in general, I think it is easy for me personally to fall prey to that and say, like, you know what, we should just trust the scientists. But it is true that, again, the, the science can't give you the conclusion on the path forward, right? The idea is, like, we have these trade-offs, right, and these different outcomes, and what liberties are we willing to trade off for what outcomes? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and I think people don't see that all. Yeah, you know, um, and I think that goes back to certitude a little bit, right? Where it's like, if you say trust the science, and the scientists are pushing a, a policy proposal, 
the reason why you feel comfortable saying that is your values line up with the implicit values of those scientists. Yeah. That when combined with those premises, imply this course of action. Right. So to you, it's like, hey, this is obvious. But to someone who has different like moral intuitions, it's like not obvious at all. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm a rationalist too, so I think absolutely we should try to like you know be rigorous in our thinking and like start from scientific premises as much as possible. But yeah, I think we have to like allow people to, you know, like you said, like, we have to factor in the differences of philosophy about what those premises mean. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's why we have politics. Yeah. I will say that this book did, you know, increase my opinion of politics and of the value of politics. Um, he has it somewhere in here um, in one of the other chapters. Maybe I'll find it later. But basically saying that, like, politics is is not a necessary evil, but it's a practical good. Oh, yeah, here it is. Politics is not just a necessary evil. It is a realistic good. Like, it's ultimately actually a good thing. And I think that's, to be honest, quite a turnaround in how I view politics in general. Same. Um, because totally I've historically same. definitely been one of these, you know, American businessmen, technologists that he describes in various places in the books and yeah. thinks they're, they're above politics. Politics is stupid. It's, you know, this inefficient, like, crazy system. And it's, you know, people just bickering at each other and nothing's getting done. Um and I think now I am like, okay, you know what? I, I do buy the argument that in a state of this size, sufficient complexity, given, you know, our industrialization and now the rise of, like, um, computers, the internet, like, this extremely complex system that our state is, yeah. like, the only way to reconcile all of the interests we have is politics. And it's a good way of doing those things. It's like an important activity in our society. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I, I didn't feel that way either. I thought it was really stupid. And I thought it was an obstacle. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> it's a more of a necessity, really, you know? Because like, like he's saying, if you're, if you're above politics, like, okay, here's an interest, right? I have an interest in taking your stuff. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so you might be like, I, I, I get mad, you know, that like, there's such a deep redistributive impulse in government. Um, but the reality is like by leaning into politics, we can have a discussion about, it. I want to take your stuff and I don't want my stuff taken right. and hash that out in a way that like prevents violence. Right. That's what it comes down to is like politics, alternative politics is violence. Um, but I, I do disagree with um, Crick to a certain extent where at one point he talks about how like politics is the act by which we divide the pie and I think that really economics should be the act by which we divide the pie of like, you know, who gets what. Um, I think politics is that is the act by which we stop people from killing us who want to take our shit as far as <laughs> the economic side of things goes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think part of that is, you know, he's a, a British socialist, right? He's, he's a supporter of the Labour Party and, yeah. you know, they... They're a little more... Um, How do I want to put this? They're significantly further. The Overton window is significantly further to the left across the pond than here. And especially at this time, because again, the way he's talking, it's like, who knows? Maybe socialism does work. Maybe communism does work, you know? But if it does, we still shouldn't do it. Yeah. 
Whereas now, like, you know, like, um, uh, most modern American socialists are promoting something quite different from, like, centralized control of the economy. Yeah. You know, they're, they're promoting an de- additional degree of centralization and control, which I think is suboptimal and damaging. But I don't. In this time, they really thought like you maybe you could do this successfully, like really successfully, like efficiently, you know, without the mercantilist or market element. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just a very different time. Yeah. Like when he's talking in the totalitarianism section about like the fathers of the nation, you know, like the the dictators around the world. He's like, yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean they are bad, but like you know, many of them are bad. Like to have to like couch his words like that really tells you something about the era he's in. Yeah, which is interesting, because you would think that in the 60s, that wouldn't be acceptable. I mean, it's also interesting, this is something that I was talking to Margaret about, I think that in, so what's interesting to think about is his biases, and where he was educated, and where he's living, and where he's writing. So he's British, right? Yeah. Born and raised, and over there, there was more sympathy, I would argue, for the communists than in the u.s oh yeah especially in the 60s with mccarthyism and and all of that stuff so like yeah in the u.s it was stridently anti-communist like you could not really publicly support communists and i would say that was anti-political as well in a way yeah um yeah i i think so the other thing that's interesting is he's harvard and yale educated Yeah, yeah so how that factors into shaping his opinions on these things is, is kind of interesting to think about given that you know, clearly he does have some bit of that, like, you know, um, British socialism and that, you know, idea that, oh, maybe the communism can be successful, but also maybe some of his, I think his ultimate conclusion is communism can't be successful because it's based on the idea of science and science requires politics because it's about, you know, um, free pursuit of the truth and going back and forth and diverse dissenting opinions and all these things and maybe that would lead to the collapse of communism yeah the need for science but yeah i don't have a concrete conclusion there it's just interesting to think about the biases from which he's writing yeah yeah definitely is definitely is i for some reason you know as you were going through that what i realized is like you know sometimes how people now bemoan like that, you know, workplaces have gotten really political or campuses have gotten really political, really, that's not it. They've gotten apolitical. Interesting. If they were political, we'd all be able to, you know, express a variety of views. The anarchists would be able to say, let's shut it all down. You know, the communists would be able to say, let's lock everyone up. (laughs) (laughs) But that's not it. Like, there's a very narrow window of views that are, like, you know, allowed to be expressed. Um, And the rest are silenced. Yeah. Yeah interesting yeah it's completely flipped i never really thought about it that way yeah yeah me neither honestly um i think the recourse that people are looking at is to make it even more apolitical in a way where instead of just one group being able to talk politics no one can yeah and i think at work that's probably an improvement because it's just outside the scope of yeah yeah for me personally i don't want to get into those types of discussions in my workplace um if I'm close enough to a coworker to think that they're more like a friend, I'd be willing to have that conversation outside of the work context. Yeah, yeah. But it's just simply unproductive to me to be discussing that kind of stuff at, in the workplace. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. I just, yeah. Not to make too dramatic of an analogy, but like, you know, 
the, your body requires like every cell to like do what it does, right? When a cell goes crazy and tries to do way more than it's supposed to, that's cancer, right? Yeah. So I feel like if Coca-Cola would just make the sugar water and do a good job or whatever, you know, or Nike would just make the, make the good shoes, like society could function and then allow politics to occur in political spaces um, or, you know, allow ideology, I don't know. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Yeah, I do. Not ideology, but a lot of political discussion to occur where it should. Yeah. Side note, before we get into the last couple chapters, this fourth edition of the book, which I have, he has these, like, footnotes that he calls them, okay? These are not goddamn footnotes. This dude's a psychopath. A footnote to rally the academic is... What is this? Let me see here. Jesus Christ. This is 30 pages? <laughs> it's not a footnote. Yeah, like the footnotes start on page, let's see, page uh, 162 on my book. Which, by the way, in a normal book, this would be page like 350. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's 100 pages of footnotes, a little over that. And again, that that, no 100, editor. that 100 pages is, is like 300 pages of, of normal text. Yeah, like... When I when I'm on flights, you know I like to like try to get my reading done. If it's like something like Mill, right, I could finish On Liberty and Utilitarianism in one four hour flight. This took me two four hour flights <laughs> to get through, and and Mill is not like light reading. No, you know, but it's you realize though like, you know, why great works are great works when you read a book like this because this book has great ideas. And it's worth reading, but it's not a great work. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an interesting point for sure. Like like we've talked about, this has genuinely changed my views on politics. It yeah. has a ton of great ideas that I hadn't considered before. Yeah. But it's yeah. not a great work because it's not engaging and it's not written in a good writing style. It's not it's not persuasive unless you are determined unless you must read the book because you've decided that you're going to do a podcast <laughs> on it and there's no choice but to get through this motherfucker <laughs> the power of the podcast if it wasn't for the podcast i would have stopped reading this book and i would have not like it would have been i would have been worse off for that because i wouldn't have learned a lot of the great things that we learned but i did stop reading this book I, I picked up this book in high school when i was like like randomly like you know just not in school for a year. <laughs> and I was like, nope, <laughs> just didn't read it. <laughs> it was just so, so, uh, so dense, you know? Yeah. I also and think it just takes a little, certain level of discipline to like read a book like this. And I think for me, I just lack the discipline to like get through something like this at that age. Yeah. yeah. Were, you, were you about to say something? Well, I was just going to say, and just to give context, it's not like you were like reading like light books as an alternative. Like, or you're talking like, you put this down and read like Fountainhead and like Franz Kafka instead. Yeah. So that's how the motherfucker is. Yeah. Aeschylus. Yeah. Euripides. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah. that's our comparison point. I'm not saying like, okay, so uh, the book I've been reading on the side to like make me want to still read is Anthony Bourdain's book. I'm not saying like, oh yeah, this book's way harder than Anthony Bourdain's. It's way less like interesting. Because obviously that's the case. It's about politics and that one's about like, you know, Anthony Bourdain, like, doing drugs in kitchens, like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, 
Anyway, okay. I know this has been pretty long, but we have two chapters left to discuss, and at least the second last one for me was pretty light. I didn't get a ton out of that one. It's a defense of politics against false friends. I didn't get much out of this one, dude. I think part of the reason I, I didn't get much out of it is because I don't know if it's the time in which he's writing or because it's the British context or both. I think it's probably both. But he talks about, you know, a defensive politics against the non-political conservative, against the apolitical liberal. And his definition of what a conservative is is bizarre. It's not at all what I think. Like, you know, he says here, Above all else, however, the conservative wants to appear as the well-bred product of a landed aristocracy. <laughs> <laughs> like, what the fuck are you saying? That's how you can tell he's in England. Yeah, exactly. exactly. He's talking about crumpets <laughs> and wearing top hats and shit. I mean, I don't know what the fuck that is. Yeah, that's... <laughs> <laughs> that's very different. Yeah. I, so, so, you know, it's like, uh, I can't really relate to this. I think... Most people in America are doing their damnedest to not appear as a well-bred product of a landed aristocracy, yeah. even if they genuinely are. Yeah. Like, who who is that? Like, the Kennedys and the Rockefellers, maybe? Well, even then, the Kennedys are, like, you know, bootleggers, kids. And yeah. Like, the Rockefellers, too, are, like, you know, wildcatters and oil men. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they just sound fancy now, but, yeah. 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 Um... No, that's interesting. We really don't have something too similar. I guess, like, Boston Brahmins would be something similar, you know, where they've just been here since, like, 1650 and, like, don't really work because whatever. But even then, like, those people, their money comes from somewhere. It's not like they just have owned vast tracts of land forever and, like, generate income that way. Like, some uh, Downton Abbey type shit. Yeah. 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 The manor or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's a weird, highly British thing. But generally, I, this what, what I got out of this chapter, this, sh- this chapter actually did hit me a little bit because, you know, we often have these conversations where we're like, listen, you know, shit's going to hell in a handbasket, but we should just focus on ourselves and just ignore. <laughs> just try to, like, figure our own lives out, focus on the economics, focus on, like, our personal situation, because it's the best thing we can do to, like, you know, really make an impact. And I still believe that. Yeah. But I also believe that politics is not just a disgusting sideshow to be completely ignored. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. No, I I agree with you. The reason I laughed like that is because that is genuinely what I thought, like, a couple weeks ago. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Which the Brian Kaplan episode was, like, the perfect one to just, like, throw fuel on the fire of that. Yeah, exactly. We're like, I was right. Like, the politicians do suck and politics is evil. And there is nothing we can do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But but I do agree that, yeah, there are things we can do. And it is important to engage in the system. And politics is, again, it's a realistic good. It's how we can achieve the society we want. Yeah. Um, and like we talked about earlier, it's very telling that, you know, the libertarians and the anarchists propose no alternatives. Yeah. Yeah. Libertarians and the anarchists, I don't know what they're doing. I think they're LARPing. <laughs> I just don't think they're serious, you know? Yeah. yeah. Which is a shame, because I think of... I don't know, we need to learn more about it, but I do find myself attracted to this concept of, like, a minarchist society, which is, like, a night watchman state, where they just keep us all from killing each other. <laughs> you know? But, but then again, hey, what about all this other stuff, you know? What if I... You know? We have a... a, a a lake in town and I really like going there and like 
you have a business and you want to produce stuff and you're polluting the lake, you know? Like, I, at, at the wedding um, we were at, I met this guy who was a, like, environmental science professor in Maine. And he had a very, like, nuanced view of, like, the local economy there where he's like, yeah, there's these textile mills and they're, like, you know, vital to the community and, like, they do a lot for bringing the community together. They host these dinners and give out Thanksgiving turkeys to people who can't afford them and have jobs. But they're polluting the water supply, which affects the fisheries, and that's where politics comes in, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's actually a good point because in my, you know, sustainability courses in college um, for my minor, that was something that was stressed constantly. And we took real case studies. Like, we had people come in from, like, the, you know, Minnesota state government, and they were talking about conflicts over similar things. Like, yeah. Except instead of textile mills in the Iron Range, it's it's mining. Yeah. So it's mining and it's access to water, and you also tie in there these um, the Native American tribes there collecting wild rice is like a sacred practice for them. Right. Um, right. So the mines are critical to the economy. Like there's no jobs in northern Minnesota without the mines, other than tourism. Yeah. So the people who live there, most of them are strongly in favor of the mines. Then the Native Americans are strongly opposed to the mines because through environmental studies, they found that the pollutants that they're putting in the water makes it nearly impossible for wild rice to survive. So they're fundamentally, you know, removing this, you know, sacred and, you know, thousands of year long cultural practice um, by doing the mining. And then on top of that, there's like the people from... Minneapolis and the rest of the state who really want to see those lands preserved for future generations as these pristine outdoor spaces. Right. Um, right. And it's this extremely complex interplay of factors that, again, as you say, can only be resolved by politics because ultimately, you know, sustainability has to be about, has, has to include, you know, economics. It has to include um, social factors and it also has to include environmental factors. Yeah. And there's no scientific conclusion that can thread the needle through that trifecta. It's kind of the perfect example to illustrate, you know, why this is needed. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, you know, in a minarchist state, I mean, what do you have? You have the mining continues and that's it. Yeah. That's what it would have to be. You know, without politics, what do you have? You have, you know, the Native Americans get pissed and kill the miners. Yeah, if they're lucky, <laughs> probably the miners get pissed and kill the Native Americans. Yeah, some combination of those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but but the point is, you know, like like you said, there's no there's no um, clear answer on that. You know, it's it's not like the science just says this is the conclusion. Um, and going back to majoritarianism, my guess is most people there are miners, not Native Americans, right? Yeah. Okay. So then, majority rules. It's done, right? Yeah. Whereas that's not enough. You you have to factor in the interests of each group and like, you know, hash it out. Right. So people feel like they've gotten some kind of meaningful outcome, even if it's less than perfect. Yep. Okay, a couple quotes here that I liked. So this was an interesting one where he's talking about corruption. The real objection to corruption in politics is not that it is an immoral act in itself, but that it may distort the representativeness of politics so that effective responsive government becomes impossible or exceedingly hard in a totalitarian state corruption can actually preserve a germ of freedom that was interesting that was strange to me yeah 
But it's kind of like he, he makes a lot of these arguments where he says that these things are not like fundamentally good or bad or like prior to politics, but um, they're in service of good governance. And he talks about that with, I think it's the same thing he was saying with, you know, liberty and inalienable rights. He's saying it here with corruption, just that the problem is not that thing in and of itself, but it's what that allows us to get to. Yeah, but that's a that's a pretty consequentialist view, right? Where it's like, you know, if corruption helps us achieve a positive consequence, it's good, right? Yeah. So then you got to ask: Is there something fundamental about fulfilling your duties as a as a public servant which has value, even if it yields a suboptimal consequence? Yeah. Um, or even from a consequentialist standpoint, if over the long sweep of time, I guess this really is, it depends, right? Because I guess that's his point. Like, if you're in Nazi Germany. And you're slipping loaves of bread to the people in a concentration camp. You're corrupt. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess it is very contextual. Yeah. 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 Another interesting one here is politics arises only because neither accidental self-interest nor some arbitrary idea of the common good provides a sufficient warrant to govern a free society. Individualism is not by itself a political doctrine. A man is a man because he is not something else. His self-identity is part of the human condition. Politics does not give him this, so it cannot take it away. Politics must respect individuality rather than try to dissolve it away, as the ideologist attempts. But no particular style of politics follows from the great and simple fact of self-identity. Hmm. I thought it was interesting as well. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. I, I think perhaps part of the reason why we're having this totalitarian moment is because ideology is able to be like pumped into our heads like constantly and much more consistently you know through social media but then that has a magnifying effect you know yeah because like if if all the people who are producing news on either side have ideology constantly pumped into their veins through social media then they're probably going to produce more ideologically motivated news items shows movies tv shows etc um, music being a somewhat of an exception, uh, and sports being somewhat of an exception as well. Not perfectly, but um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, if this is like if social media truly like destroys like democracy, <laughs> that would be so dumb. It would like, be. It's just like not the way you thought it would go. You know. Yeah, it's kind of like that movie. Uh, that like comedy movie about the future where oh, like, idiocracy yeah, yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> it's a classic yeah um yeah here's another interesting point he made when he's talking about liberalism so he says as professor galbraith has argued the liberal builds an affluent society on private splendor and public squalor the liberal is so much in love with liberty that he can too easily neglect to make use of the public power of politics to maintain the external social conditions in which abstract liberty becomes meaningful to the many. Hmm. This question there is, can the government do that in a meaningful and sustainable way without promoting dependency, without, you know, um, hampering people's desire to like go out and better their own condition and without causing second and third order consequences um well to the last point without causing second without and third, causing i don't know, think undue okay, excessive because yeah, i was yeah. gonna say you can't do anything without causing second and third order 
consequences. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, one-child policy is a good example, yeah. right? Yeah. Where you're yeah. like, hey, is, you know, we have limited resources, we're having overpopulation, you can only have one child. Boom, now people start killing their daughters in order to have more sons to work in agrarian contexts. Right. And now you have, you know, massive demographic collapse. Like, that's, that's an example, but we have tons of examples here, too. Yeah, for sure. For sure. No, I think it's an interesting point, but I also think his point that, like, liberty in politics is only useful to people who are secure in their ability to, like, live live and eat is true. And yeah. if the government doesn't provide, you know, avenues to improve these things, they'll go towards ideologies that will give them that. I think in the case of, like, the police violence, I, I think that is a case of that, where, like, you know, you can argue the degree to which it is true or not, but, like, people at least feel that the government is no longer providing them with security based on the color of their skin. And for that reason, they're getting pushed to these extreme ideologies that are offering them that. Yeah, I, I think that... The, <clears throat> I agree with you. I agree with you to an extent, though. I think that one's a huge mire, because you know, if you, um, yeah, it's just like it's a mess. It's a mess. There's both under policing and over policing. Both are wrong, but it's really hard to get this right. Yeah, you know, like the Jacob Blake case in Kenosha is a good example where, um, I mean, I don't know everything about it, but like the guy is like a domestic abuser. He's armed, his, the person he's abusing calls the cops, the cops show up and shoot him, right? This is not a Derek Chauvin situation, uh, but there's massive riots, right? Um, so what is the right level of policing? Is the right level of policing leave everyone alone and just allow crime to run rampant? Because they've, they've done something like that in certain cities, right? Where crime rates are persistently way higher in certain parts of town, way lower in others. There's no crackdown. There's no like, hey, we're going to stop this at all costs. This is not acceptable. It's more of a live and let live, just don't cross into this neighborhood kind of thing. Yeah. So it's just very hard to get this right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, I just think the point that like, you know, without these basic needs met, people will get pushed away from the political system is an important one for us to keep in mind, especially for me, you know. Like I said, I do believe in classical liberalism, and I do believe in the value of liberty pretty strongly. Um, and I think that that quote where he says, you know, the liberal will build a society, an affluent society on private splendor and public squalor. Um, I think the policy positions that I believe in, at times, I can see how certain aspects could lead to that, you know? Um, yeah, perhaps, yeah. And I think it's just something to be... I think nowhere is more in America uh, <laughs> emblematic of that than San Francisco. Absolutely, yeah, right? that's very true. You have a billionaire walking out of a skyscraper and then walking over people just dying on the streets. But, but you totally... That's not because of, uh, of you know, what do you call it? Like a libertarian regime. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's fair. <laughs> that's a fair point. Um, yeah, but it's just an interesting thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's fair, but that actually, yeah, in a way that, that, that emphasizes my point, which is, like, we spend so much money here to try to do it right, and it's not right. It's yeah. a mess. You know? yeah. So my question is, like, are we better off for the attempt? And I don't know that there's an obvious answer for that. Yeah. Here, I don't think we are. Like, all the money we've put into 
addressing homelessness and crime and such here. Has it helped so far? I mean, maybe it'll help in the future if we approach it with a more conventional, you know, tag. But, um, yeah. Or like India too, right? India is a, is a socialist country. You have that same dynamic of billionaires, you know, walking outside and there's like slums everywhere. But it's not because this is like a radically free place. It's, you know, extremely regulated place. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But maybe I'm being an ideologue, you know, like... Okay, Steelman. Steelman. If we had no social services, the poorest people, how would they even, whatever, like have a telephone to receive a call to take an interview or have interview clothes or like be able to make, put a resume together or have the ability to cultivate basic skills or feed themselves if, they, if they're really on the bottom. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, that's fair. I, and I, I think, think related to that, too, taking the Indian example, like, yes, the abject poverty in India is way worse, like, no doubt, than here. Similar. But I think one, one big difference in India is that the poorest person in the poorest slum in Mumbai can walk into a hospital and get medical treatment. That's not the case here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the medical system... Again, it's a very, very messy and complicated one, but yeah. Because you've talked about this too, where you're like, you know, the medical industrial complex yeah. can consume literally every dollar. And it's really easy to see this when you think of like, let's say you had someone and you were just like, we're going to keep them alive. We're going to like Robocop them and they will live. How much money could you invest in that? Infinite millions is my opinion. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And I multiply that by 300 million people. Yeah. 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 Um... So I think we have the worst of all worlds here, where we have like um, a crony corporatist system of large companies in league with the government shaping regulation to suit them and squeeze out as much profit as they can. But we don't have transparency. We don't have a true free market in healthcare, nor do we have single payer. Yeah. What we have is a mess. Yeah. 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 Okay, so the final chapter of this book is In Praise of Politics. Um, this one I like quite a bit. I think one of the things he touched on right at the beginning is, um, I'll, I'll quote here, politics deserves praising as, in Aristotle's words, the master, the master science, not excusing as a necessary evil, for it is the only, quote, science or social activity which aims at the good of all other sciences or activities, destroying none, cultivating all, so far as they themselves allow. I thought that was interesting. Um, this idea of, like, politics is the activity of trying to preserve all other activities in society. Yeah, I, th I thought that was a pretty, a pretty interesting way to talk about it as well. And then... It's hard to see that sometimes, but... Yeah, yeah I, I agree, it, it is hard to see that, and I'm not sure if I necessarily agree with the conclusion, but... Um, but I guess maybe it's that whole, like, premise machine thing, right? Where other activities throw premises up to politics, where politics creates conclusions out of them. Yeah. 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 That's easier for me to swallow. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I thought this was also interesting. So, politics is conservative. It preserves the minimum benefits of established order. Politics is liberal. It is compounded of particular liberties, and it requires tolerance. Politics is socialist. 
It provides conditions for deliberate social change by which groups can come to feel that they have an equitable stake in the prosperity and survival of the community. The stress will vary with time, place, circumstance, and even with the moods of men, but all of these elements must be present in some part. Out of their dialogue, progress is possible. Politics does not just hold the fort. It creates a thriving and polyglot community outside the castle walls. Politics, then, is a way of ruling in divided societies without undue violence. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, should we go over some like concrete ideas for political reforms that could improve things? To yeah. counter uh, Brian's... Yeah, yeah, we should do that. Um, well, this is a, from a combination of different sources, including Michael's, but not only. Um, so one one criticism here was that basically, you know, Brian talks about you know politicians as dishonest, and he always assumes bad faith. He comes from a place of assuming bad faith. And this is a criticism I heard actually from a couple of people after hearing the Kaplan episode. Um, you know, Margaret, Margaret being one of them, Michael being one of them, a few others. Critiques along this line where it's like he's assuming that in all cases politicians are evil. In all cases politicians are coming from bad faith. In all cases politicians are acting only in their self-interest. Yeah. Now I think my counter to that, or if I was going to defend it from Brian Kaplan's point of view, is that He's not necessarily saying that that is how all politicians actually are, but he's trying to analyze the political system similar to how an economist analyzes markets by saying that if we assume this self-interest, then what are the outcomes that come from that? But but I don't know. I thought that was interesting that I heard that from a couple people. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I thought that was interesting too. I mean, what I would say is like, you know... um, if you take business people, right? Business people seek to maximize profit. But they don't necessarily seek to do it at, at all costs to the you know detriment of everyone, like, you know, stepping over dead bodies to do so. Yeah. Most business people are not like that. Like they want to maximize profit, but they have limits to what they'll do to do so. Right. Um, that's the reality of it. And I think same with politicians is like it's not just about power hunger. Yeah. They do seek, you know, to gain power that's the nature of politics and the political game but they seek to do so because they have certain values that they want to espouse they think they can make a positive difference by doing it at least on some level right um so i i don't i don't think necessarily like it's it's individual bad faith it's more like the structure of the system and the core motivation that differentiates it and, and as a core motivation i think power is worse than profit I yeah. would agree with that still. Yeah, yeah, I do still agree with that. But I thought that was an interesting thing, and I think that was maybe something with the way we presented the episode. Um, no, I think Brian is pretty strident about yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair. Fair. Yeah. Um, so another one here is, again, this idea that, like, is this the best that we can do? Can, can we change society? So, you know, there's this idea that, like, politicians respond to incentives, and we can change the incentives and the rules of the game like the system is not static so a point here that 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 was made to me was like in 1895 voting was totally different there were no primaries it's all like weird backroom negotiations um 
There's no senators. The senators were de- decided by state congresses. Um, they're just local races and maybe like a governor's race and a house race. So we've changed the incentives before. Yeah. And we can do that again. So yeah. if we want to change the, the out, like politicians are responding to inputs and the incentives of the system. So if we don't like the outputs, we should try to change the system instead of throwing up our hands and saying, hey, um, all politics is bad. Yeah. What are some of the changes we can make? Um, so I think one of the things I was listening to in a, in a different podcast was this idea of um, ranked choice voting, um, the idea of nonpartisan primaries. So nonpartisan primaries actually is something we do have in California, which is good. But the downside of the way we do it in California is that we don't do ranked choice. So I think if you look at basically what's going to happen is the Democratic incumbent is going to make it to the general election. Mm. He's going to win the primary in the state because of the demographics. Right. And then probably there's enough Republicans to get the mainstream Republican candidate through the primary as well. As we found... This time around. Yeah. Schellenberger. But if you have ranked choice, right, the potentially that second candidate becomes someone who is actually electable, like an independent. Right. Because the Republican in California for governor today, I'd argue, is unelectable. Yep. It's impossible to elect them. Yeah. A lot would have to change. Yeah. Yeah. An independent maybe could be elected, but the only way that happens is if we have Democrats who say, yeah, okay, my number one pick is a Democratic incumbent, but my number two is this independent. Right. And then you have Republicans who say, yeah, my number one is a Republican, but my number two is this independent. And you have enough of those number twos that concentrate on this independent that they rise to the top of the ranked choice. You know what that sounds like to me? What? Sounds like politics. Yeah. Sounds like conciliation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but, but that's an example of a concrete reform. I think another thing we talked yeah. about was the consolidation of power in the Speaker of the House. I'm not educated enough to know what, how we could reform that because it seems like it's been more of like a informal concentration of power than like a change in procedure that has led to that. Yeah. So I don't know what we could do to change that. Um, but yeah, those, would be a cultural shift. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. But uh, those are a couple of things in terms of uh, reforms. Um, so I, I think another reform I heard of that might be beneficial is like congressmen used to all live in D.C., but now they live in their home states and they fly into D.C. And as a result, their families and their kids don't go to the same schools. They don't go, you know, see baseball games together. They don't uh, come into contact at the gym these basic ways in which you would build relationships so that you could compromise have just completely started to disappear because of this change. That's interesting, and that's a really good point. There's a great quote that I'm going to try to find from the book that's very related to that. So try to, I don't know, say something. Okay, here we go. (laughs) Okay, so politics involves genuine relationships with people who are genuinely other people not tasks set for our redemption or objects for our philanthropy. They may be genuinely repulsive to us, but if we have to depend upon them, then we have to learn to live with them. The liberal tries to ignore these unpleasantnesses at the cost so often of failing to govern at all. But that's exactly just going to your point, that like yeah. the ability to compromise is predicated on having genuine relationships with other people. Yeah. 
Um, and yeah, I could definitely see how that would help is if, you know, the politicians in DC would rub shoulders more often um, outside of the context of their work. Yeah, and that's somewhat anti-democratic, right? Because that, the reason this change was made is so people <clears throat> better represent their home states and don't become distant from their home states by being off in D.C. As a result, though, we've had the second-order consequence of that's exactly what happens. They're less connected with each other and therefore find it harder to conciliate, you know? Right. Um, I, one thing about this is I think another thing that's like this is also capitalism. Because if I'm baking a loaf of bread and it's for you, I'm gonna you know know everything that's in it. It's gonna be of a certain quality. If I'm managing a large anonymous corporation of inputs, both resource and human inputs, and I'm trying to sell you know bread to people I don't know, perhaps then I'm gonna you know manage by instrument and you know uh, cut costs here, cut costs there, tweak this, tweak that, change the formula because I don't know you. So your well-being is in top of mind because you're not even a full person to me. Right. So I still think, you know, the profit motive is superior to the power motive, but the same dynamic transpires where relationships are what kind of like imbue these systems with like life and imbue these systems with moral boundaries. Right. You know. Right. Um... Another critique I saw here was just that, like, the idea that, like, basically people who can't do go into politics, like, people who are just, like, shitty Suck. and not smart. Is that not true? Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, one, one argument made here was that, like, as much as people hate Ted Cruz, um, he went to Princeton and Harvard Law School. Yeah. Um, you know, he's clearly a smart individual. And, and I think I, he's a first-generation co- uh, immigrant for sure, but might be a first-generation college student, too. Maybe I'm making that up totally. I'm doing work with it. And I hate his politics, but I will give him credit for that. Um, and then I think the uh, another one, you know, like people go to Stanford and Yale. Like, basically, the argument is that our politicians are among the best and the brightest of us. And um, wow, I couldn't disagree more with that. <laughs> I think that you could sell me on our politicians are not complete idiots. Yeah, that I buy with with, with that. Uh, I mean, yes, there's there's some smart people there. I just think, like, uh, I don't know. How do, how do I put this? Like, it's not just about their intelligence, you know? It's about their, their overall, like, orientation towards the world, their character, what motivates them, you know? Yeah, um, that's fair. But I guess the point is that they're not just, like, morons. No, they're, well, no. Wow, that's a hard one to swallow. <laughs> Man, I got a real bias on that one, yeah. But, uh, you know, I think the flip side of that, too, is like, yeah. what politicians have we talked to? Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Right? They're like this nefarious other who's, like, trying to enforce regulations on our life and, like, taking money from lobbyists. But, like, I don't know any politicians. That's a great point. So maybe that's why it's so easy to think they're all morons is because we don't know, like, what these people are actually like. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. It's the same reason why I, hear, I see people online saying stuff like, oh, like, all the tech people think that they are just, like, you know, God's gift to Earth. They can influence, they can force their opinions on everyone else. They're just trying to extract profit at all costs. 
Like, yeah, I saw something like that on like some Reddit comment the other day, and I was like, "What the fuck?" Interesting. <laughs> Definitely not what I observe here. Um, yeah, mostly people are just trying to build things and solve problems. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, objectively, you know, to to go to like Princeton and Harvard Law School, you have to have certain like grades, which implies a certain level of intelligence. Yeah. Yes. I'll grant that. And a lot of people have backgrounds like that, you know, like they're doctors, you know, and lawyers and Indian chiefs. That's true. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like Obama was a smart guy. Yeah. Mitt Romney, smart guy. Biden? Big question mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he probably was a smart guy. He's a little confused now. <laughs> yeah. Like he's inventing his own language now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You seen that video? <laughs> Uh, no, which one is that? I, I need to find it. Like, he, he, <laughs> he's in the middle of a speech, and then he says something like, I'm sure I'm still or something. Um, oh, good. If nothing else, at least we're all getting some humor out of this. Yeah. <laughs> But no, I think ultimately, you know, I think he provides a compelling defense of politics. And I think the, 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 the kind of critical flaw in, in Kaplan's ideology is this lack of an alternative um, and this lack of a path forward. And until someone can prevent a path forward that is not ideological in nature, right, that is not like, oh... I discovered this magic key to history. Yeah, Politicians yeah. hate this one fact. <laughs> oh my God. You nailed it. That's exactly what it is, isn't it? Wow. <laughs> like, uh, until we have some real, you know... That's exactly what it is. Uh, alternatives that actually lead to the preservation of the liberties of different groups and serves to reconcile them. Um, I'm going to say that I'm, I'm strongly in favor of politics. Yeah. Because the alternatives are just too appalling. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I, I think I'm, I'm convinced on the fact that, like, you know, politicians, like other groups of people, do not have universal ill intent. They're not all idiots. Um, and their only skill is not just, like, whatever, manipulating public opinion, though that is a core skill to get into that position. For sure. It's not the only skill. Yeah. You know, it would be like saying that the core skill of being a businessman is just being like a swindler. Yeah. When literally that's not what it is. It's, you know. But a lot of people believe that. A lot of people believe that, yeah. And they're wrong. So maybe we're, we're wrong about this too to a certain extent, you know? Yeah. 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 Hmm. Any closing thoughts on this book? <clears throat> I have one closing thought, and that is <clears throat> on unity. <clears throat> So, Socrates assumes that the greatest possible unity of the whole city, society, is the supreme good. Yet, it's obvious that a society which goes on and on and becomes more and more of a unit will eventually cease to be a society at all. So, even if we could have this unity, we ought not to achieve this object because it would be the destruction of society itself. Some paraphrased Aristotle to emphasize the point of politics yeah yeah it's good stuff so ultimately after having gone through this podcast look guys 
there is a ton of good stuff in this book. I'm not going to lie about that either. But it, it was a pretty painful read. So if you're interested in it and you do want to pick it up, um, do us a solid. Use the affiliate link in the description. We'll get a couple cents from you. Yeah, I agree. Otherwise, if you're interested in this, if you're enraged because you're, I called you a tanky or because you, <laughs> you know, love Marxism or, you know, you, uh, whatever else, you know, please send your angry rants to contact at rdmr.io or at rdmr underscore io on Twitter. Agree. Um, yeah, this was fun. Yeah, it was definitely fun. It was definitely fun. It was a lot more fun than reading the book, but the book was good. Like like Ari was saying, it, it, look, if you're really a student of this stuff, if you're passionate about this stuff, you should probably get this book. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you just listened to two hours and 20 minutes on it, so... <laughs> You also may not need to. Choice is yours. (laughs) And thanks for listening. Goodbye.